Welcome back to another episode of Liminal Frames. I'm your host, Nathan, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Darren King, also known as Exo Academia. And Darren, it's been a great end of the year, 2023. Uh, this is our first show of 2024. Going to be back in the podcast seat. Uh, but I'm reflecting a little bit on the end of the year and the time that I had uh, with friends and family, time away from work, which was so nice. Uh, I hope that our listeners had a chance to take a break as well and that they took something valuable away from the time that they were able to spend either alone or with those that they care about. Uh, it's such an important time of the year. I'm so grateful that that we kind of collectively observe this, uh, that, that we have these uh, kinds of traditions in our society where we take a little bit of time, we slow down, we understand that the end of the year as the season is sort of changing, we're going to slow down some and, and look back as well as get ready to look ahead. And that's what we're going to do on our episode today. But before we get into all the things that are happening now and, and that we think will be happening in 2024, I just wanted to check in with you. How have you been? I've been well. I was saying to you before I went in the air that there's been some things happening behind the scenes for me building up over the last few months, and I'll be making some announcements of some new things I'll be working on and the John Mack Institute will be working on in 2024, which are exciting. I always do take the time to make note of when these transition points happen, these kinds of rites of passage in our sort of civilization. And I try to take a real like third-party witnessing perspective. So I try not to get too attached to it either way. We know that the holidays can be a really interesting time and a really challenging time because some people, it's their favorite time of the year. They live the whole year for this time where they connect with family and friends. Other people feel like it makes them feel more alone and disconnected than ever, and they really struggle. We know that suicide prevention centers are very active during the holidays. So just the differences in people's experiences around the holidays is really uh, impacting when you think about that. But again, that's where I try to take this sort of witnessing perspective and not get attached to it either way, but sort of notice my reactions to periods of transition and also other people's reactions as well. And of course, this particular year feels particularly poignant in the sense that we're on the cusp of something that might be civilization changing. So it's not just one year to the next, but something feels different this year, I think, for many, many people. And many of us are thinking that 2024 is going to be historic, regardless of what ends up happening. So that's been very much front and center for me as well. Yeah, excellent points there. It does feel like 2024 has this great potentiality to it uh, in many different ways. And as I've gotten older, I've learned to expect or anticipate that there are going to be these uncertainties that happen every year that you can't plan for and that oftentimes can wreck you know, or dramatically change the way your life is going. And for whatever reason, going into this year, I absolutely have that sense uh, that there's just a lot of things happening in our society, certainly a lot of things happening in the UFO topic and in, in the world at large, that the potential for really dramatic change or dramatic impact on what we think of as being normal or our routines, changing those up in dramatic ways. I think there's just a lot of a likelihood of that happening this year. And I certainly don't wish that upon us, though. I don't want us to have to go through any kind of uh, severe trauma of any kind, but I also know that that can be a great teacher as well. So anyway, we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed and hope for the best as we begin the year. Um, and as we kind of switch gears into looking at the, the year ahead of us, I know we wanted to talk about some of the 
kind of latest events, the current sound bites, things that are going on in the UFO topic. And, you know, we could start pretty much anywhere, but I thought we might start with, um, I don't know, maybe a, a, a much maligned figure from 2023, and that would be Sean Kirkpatrick. And uh, he exited his post at Arrow at the end of 2023. And, you know, he he made some statements to the effect where he was really pleading with the scientific community to, to write more papers and helping him understand how he might or how Arrow might better find or identify what an extraterrestrial signature might be. Because we all, we're all familiar with the fact that they repeatedly said that they found no evidence of extraterrestrial uh, activity with any of these sightings. And it's a bit of a strange claim to make since we actually don't know what an extra, extraterrestrial uh, technology or, or being might be or what it's capable of. So again, he's pleading with the community to sort of help him out there. And and what what uh, did you think about that? And what do you think about the response from the scientific community to requests like that? Yeah, it was interesting when that came out because we've mentioned on this podcast before that there's been major questions about his sincerity, how genuine he was in terms of actually succeeding at what he was called to do with his position there and with Arrow's overall mission. But that said, he seemed to point to the fact that he actually had pleaded with the academic community, like you said, for some sort of discussion and some serious white papering around what a technosignature of an alien civilization would look like, what an alien spacecraft might look like, what kind of signatures should we look for that would distinguish it from something that would be terrestrial tech. And of course, what's interesting there is number one, that suggests that maybe he wasn't completely insincere. Maybe he really did want to be able to match to a certain signature. In other words, it wasn't just a bait and switch of, if we find an alien techno signature, we'll let you know, but hint, hint, there are, there are no such things, so that'll never happen. But maybe this is suggesting that he at least was willing to entertain the idea and even went as far as to actually behoove academics to try to give him that kind of information so he could match to a signature. But what was interesting there was that the response from academics was to say, in this day and age, with the exponential explosion of technological progress, we can't even imagine what our technology would look like in about three decades. So how could we possibly try to even conceive of what a civilization potentially thousands or even millions of years older would look like? That really poses the challenge. That really puts in a kind of frame how difficult this is because you're dealing with things that we literally don't have a toolbox for. So how would you match for such a thing? And again, as we talked about before on the air, this points to the fact that we are dealing with realities for which we just do not have toolkits. And so this points to the real challenges we're going to have moving forward, no matter how sincere people are in trying to engage with these matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm reminded of the foresight that OSAP had, that Colm Kelleher and OSAP had in uh, sort of requesting those DIRD papers from scientists to think about the advances of our technology looking ahead 50 years for this very reason. They they had encounters that were really strange, very anomalous, uh, certainly not within the normal wheelhouse of, of what would be expected. And instead of just saying, well, we don't know what this is, they were bold enough to commission these kinds of exploratory theoretical papers to, to maybe look at or get some potential answers to what these phenomena might be. 
uh, you know, it's an interesting juxtaposition of approach. And I think you'll hear them and, and I know Colin in particular kind of bemoan the fact that they're not doing this type of work any longer, that it is very uh, within the known rather than exploring what might be the unknown. And and it's interesting too, to sort of set that up against rumors that we've been hearing just this week about uh, a potential announcement we might have in 2024 of biosignatures uh, being discovered on other habitable, potentially habitable planets in, in the solar system from the James Webb telescope. So that certainly falls within the bucket of this is the kind of extraterrestrial life that we are very well calibrated to to find. So it, we have these very interesting kind of poles of, of you know phenomenological experience that fall totally outside the norm and what we might be more comfortable with, and that's a, a signature of a chemical signature in an atmosphere on a planet that we can detect, you know, millions and millions of light years away. Indeed, and that prompts questions around the interesting timing there. That what are the chances that in the very year we may officially engage with disclosure around non-human intelligences being in our midst in the very same year that we finally, for the first time ever, find clear signatures of life on another planet. It's remarkable when you think about the timing of that. Again, makes you wonder about what's going on with the nature of reality in general, that you would have those kinds of odds, right? That this would come out, that that could potentially happen in the same year. Again, some people are maybe in the conspiracy theorist camp, who of us aren't at this point, but might say, They've been sitting on this information for years, waiting for this moment so that they could just announce it as if they had just found it now so that it would help metabolize this for people, basically to prep them for even more revelations around not only do they exist on exoplanets, but they're here as well. So it's kind of a walking out people along this process so there's not this catastrophic disclosure that we keep hearing about where it's too much too soon kind of thing. But I think it's also interesting because what you just put into there with OSAP being such an unusual, unconventional kind of investigation where they said, we don't know how this is connected. We're not claiming to know that. But what you have to do scientifically when you don't understand something is at least acknowledge the variables in play. And so if high strangeness and general paranormality, meaning portals opening in midair and strange beings crawling out of them, co-arise with particular you know, standard UFO sightings where these craft are doing 90 degree turns that Colm Kelleher has talked about and whatnot, then you have to acknowledge that. What good does it do you to exclude that information because it's embarrassing or something when we're clearly trying to understand something that we do not understand and for which we do not even have a template for? So at the very least, you have to open the aperture, as we say many times on this show, and record as much of the data as you can that's co-arising and then begin to generate hypotheses, basically of whole cloth, like this is new territory here saying what could possibly be the nature of reality and the nature of these other kinds of intelligences such that we have these kinds of things happening in concert with each other. That's really the approach we need. My concern would be echoing calm there, that there's not nearly enough of that. People still get excited when Abi Loeb's going to make some sort of announcement about what he thinks about these things. He's very much a very conventional thinker coming from a conventional system. And I don't think that's going to be near enough to make sense of the bizarre strangeness that's involved here, which of course people like Jacques Vallée have been noting for decades now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, switching topics a little bit to other, another current event that uh, is coming up next week. In fact, that is the ICIG briefing 
on the 12th with uh, certain cleared members of Congress, uh, obviously that gets a lot of buzz. Any kind of briefing always gets a lot of attention. But we know from past briefing opportunities that that can be a bit of a mixed bag in terms of what might be revealed, what can be revealed, who's cleared to know what, et cetera, et cetera. So what do you anticipate hearing from that? And I, I know we had something from Chris Mellon as well. I think he's you know, trying to get out in front of, of people's expectations here. But what, what do you see happening with that briefing next week? Well, on the one hand, it's, it's encouraging that it's happening at all. That's a good thing. That's some signs of ongoing progress. But yes, we will run into the same issues we've discussed before in this podcast, which is it's not just a matter of what the information is, but who's providing the information and who is present that is cleared to be able to hear that information. Because you could have the most informed person in the world, but if the people in the audience don't have the appropriate clearances, then they're not going to be able to say much. And even answering questions will be very difficult. We think again about how many times Dave Grush had to say in the congressional testimony, I can't speak to that right now. Um, be happy to talk about it in a skiff. But of course, since then, we've learned that being in a skiff is not enough on its own. You still have to have clearances from both the people speaking and the people hearing at that point. But yeah, it's going to be interesting. What I've heard some of our community pointing to is that what they at least hope will happen is that there will be questions around what made the ICIG deem the allegations credible and urgent. So those were the official terms used by the ICIG regarding the allegations that Grush made. So people are wanting to learn more about the process. How did he determine that it was credible and urgent? We know that he's spoken to something like 40 whistleblowers, including firsthand witnesses. So not just secondary testimony now, but firsthand witnesses. So what did he learn in the process of his investigation to deem that the allegations were credible and urgent? Urgent is really interesting to me too, because it's not just urgent maybe in the sense of uncovering some sort of malfeasance amongst the military industrial complex, but maybe even urgent in terms of this is something our society needs to be aware of, needs to grok and prepare for kind of thing. But yes, you mentioned Chris Mellon. This is what he said today in prepping for this committee that will happen with the ICIG. Quote, the public should not expect much, if any, new information from the pending UAP briefing for the House Oversight Committee. After all, it will be a classified session. However, Committee members may be able to provide a sense of the degree to which the ICIG has pursued and been able to corroborate Dave Grush's claims regarding UAP information withheld from Congress, unquote. So again, kind of the, the steady as she goes kind of comment from Chris Mellon saying we shouldn't get too excited, but we're hoping to see some movement. Again, what we're looking for here is incremental progress that's definitely moving in one direction that's not reversing on itself. We're still seeing that even though it's not happening at the pace that some people in the community would prefer. Definitely. And I remember seeing a, a post today from Congressman Burleson is really bemoaning that, that the stonewalling on UAP, the UAP topic is unacceptable. He referenced the deep state, you know, kind of getting in the way of, of UAP. Um, it's, uh, it's clear that this UAP caucus isn't, uh, you know, kind of giving up on this issue that they're still very keen to get to the bottom of it to understand it they're going to be pushing for that this year um i wish them the best it's going to be very difficult i think and clearly that is the case i mean that's what we're hearing from this representative that there seem to be continued efforts uh preventing people from coming forward or, or in releasing particular information uh hopefully we'll get to shake some of that information loose 
There is an upcoming op-ed that we're all anticipating from David Grush in, in February. That's the current rumor, uh, as well as he has hinted that he, or at least Ross Coulthard, has hinted that he has been cleared by Dobser again to reveal a few more details than he was cleared to reveal before. So additional clues, breadcrumbs from David Grush on the horizon. I'm excited for that. But I'm also really hoping we'll hear some names, some new names of whistleblowers who are ready and willing to step forward. And of the first kind of hand variety, the folks that have really been you know, on the program or in one of the programs, it would be great if we had heard from one of their voices in the early part of this year. For sure. And I'm excited about that too. And I'm aware of some things that have been happening behind the scenes to that end, where basically the Schumer Amendment was the first attempt to let this work through the usual process. And then hopefully that would be the way that disclosure would happen. But then for these whistleblowers, seeing how much that was, again, blocked by the usual forces in terms of the military industrial complex and the contractors basically having the ear of these Congress people who ended up blocking it. So much of that was taken out before being passed into law. So after that, many of these whistleblowers I've heard have taken other action. There's other ways you can go about this, even bypassing Arrow altogether. And that there have been some powerful attorneys, maybe even attorneys associated with the Soul Foundation, who are prepared to help them take the legal precautions they need to, to be able to get this information out through appropriate means, but even if they are alternative means to the original ways this was sort of intended to get out. So I'm excited about that as well. Of course, we also have in 2024, Luella Zondo's book is coming out. That's going to be very, very interesting. I think people have noted his absence and been a bit surprised by him being so absent in light of how present he was in front and center a couple of years ago. I remember even when we started our podcast, we were often commenting on comments that Lou Elizondo had made and trying to parse those out. There have been very few since then, other than friends, stay the course, progress is being made behind the scenes. I'll have more to say soon. We've heard that kind of thing many, many times. We know that the biggest input that he will give will be in this book that's coming out. And our friend James Iandoli was the one, I think, who broke the news that he had heard that rather than taking out the parts that were not approved to be in the final publication of the book, he's going to leave it in, but sort of block it out in black. So it will look like a redacted document, basically. So we'll be able to see in the middle of this sentence, these two words are missing. They're blacked out. I wonder what those words will be. Perhaps people might even use something like AI to try to parse out what those possible words could be. We might even get pretty good about determining what those words might be, which is interesting in itself because I think that process is going to have to update over time to take account for the fact that AI can often parse out things that human beings can't. But that will be a major thing we're looking forward to. I think one other thing that I noticed, speaking of Lou Elizondo, that I mentioned to you about recently was in this tour that Danny Sheehan's been making on all these different podcasts, he actually spoke at one point to the fact that he has two clients that people often perceive as sort of bookends in the ufological community, one being Lou Elizondo and the other one being Stephen Greer. And the reason why I say they're bookends is because Stephen Greer tends to paint the phenomenon in terms of the legitimate phenomenon, not the government forces doing my labs and that kind of thing, but the actual aliens that he sees as space aliens, he sees them as overwhelmingly benevolent and we have nothing to fear from them. And you have, on the other hand, Lou Elizondo talking about this being a threat, an existential threat kind of thing that the military industrial complex 
needs to be aware of, that Congress needs to be aware of. But what Danny Sheehan said, I thought was very center lane in some ways and helped to sort of balance that equation because he acknowledged that he thinks actually Stephen Greer is a bit too Pollyanna-ish in terms of his view about this. And that also Lou, though, is not nearly as negative about the thing as some people have taken some of his statements to mean, that they're closer together than people might believe, and that overwhelmingly is still Danny Sheehan, having heard testimony from both of these clients, right, as well as others, still has a pretty positive view about this in terms of what this means for humanity, that this is a major stepping stone for us becoming part of this larger cosmic community. So you're not hearing a lot of alarm bells from him. You're hearing more this commitment to disclosure so that we can actually have this larger cosmic communication and conversation uh, moving forward. Well, I I really hope he's right. I, I want to share his optimism that this is really positive. And, and I certainly think, as we alluded to at the beginning of the show, with this year being potentially dangerous or, or you know, monumental as it might be, that a positive kind of disclosure, something that would bring humanity together, that would help us realign our priorities that are clearly not in the right place right now, that that would be very welcome. Uh, the world is in need of a, a change and a change that is for the better, uh, kind of a paradigm shift is the, the phrase that I would want to use, that the way in which we're doing things now has worked fairly well, but we've kind of run this system into the ground and it's not helping us any longer. It's actually doing us harm. And a paradigm shift would be needed to get us out of this rut, uh, to change things up and help us realign our priorities, come closer together, recognize that we're all part of the same community, all part of the, the community of people on this planet, of life on this planet, how special that is. Um, that would be a really tremendous change for us. So fingers crossed that that Danny is right and that that's the potential that is at play here. And I, and I totally understand these perspectives that Greer and, and Elizondo have held, uh, you know, one from an outsider who certainly has had a lot of connections with the phenomena, both uh, personally and through sources, and one who's been inside these kinds of programs or closer to the programs than, than certainly Greer was. And very different perspectives, very different kinds of training. The, the lenses that each of them bring to this topic, uh, I think, are very much on display. You can, you can sort of see how they've been trained to think about the world and how that influence has, has played out in their perspective on what is at play here with, with the phenomena itself. Absolutely. And a couple of things I'd like to add about that. Number one, it's important to think about their backgrounds, even their professional training, when you think about the way they've approached this topic, right? So Luella Zondo has worked in disinformation and trying to parse out when our adversaries are giving false information and has been part of the process of using false information and misinformation to confuse and confound our adversaries. And again, of course, some people in the community shouted, that's a red flag in itself because how do we know this is not a PSYOP? And he's just, again, using his usual expertise to fool the UFO community. But I think that, again, he's just using his usual skill set to try to analyze this. And obviously, initially, a tip was about recognizing a potential threat. So, of course, that's the lens he's going to use. That would make sense. That's the appropriate way, in some ways, based on his position, to look at that. On the other hand, because someone like Stephen Greer, who I'm quite sympathetic to in the sense that he's had overwhelmingly positive encounters with these beings throughout his life going back to when he was quite young. So have I. I've had nothing but positive encounters. And I 
appreciate when I see other people in the community talk about whether it's trickster elements or whatever that to them do not feel fun and warm and fuzzy, but actually anything but, especially when their children are involved. And again, because this is, I would argue, as I've been arguing for a long time now, about something much larger than one group. It's about many different kinds of groups coming from different origin sources. As I was talking to my friend Sean Asborn Hargens about, really the challenge with reductionistic materialism is that anything that doesn't fit that narrow box gets called the quote-unquote phenomenon. But really, the problem is that is a really small box of which everything else that's surrounding it gets confused as one thing. And people, again, as I've said before, I think get confused because they try to collapse it into one thing because they assume the box we have is large and all-encompassing, but it's not. And so the challenge is you can have someone who could have decades of nothing but positive encounters and being completely genuine in that while somebody else is encountering something of a completely different nature that's not particularly positive. And you've also got, of course, in that mix, different people with different worldviews, different levels of developmental consciousness, and our interpretation comes into it as well. So it's a really complex mix. And as I was saying to you before we started recording, this is a huge part of the challenge we face because these are variables that no one's considering coming in. We're seeing people come in believing this is not real, the suddenly being confronted with evidence that it is, and all they have to compare it to is Independence Day and X-Files episodes and whatnot, and they're going to try to do that. They're not going to say, hold up, I need to take a few years to do some deep diving, parse this out, then come back and tell you what my perspective is. That's not what happens. And the more that this is in people's face quickly and suddenly, the more traumatic it will be, I think, across our civilization. So you talked about hoping that this is positive in the way that Danny Sheehan is painting it. I hope so too. And I think part of the challenge is that regardless of what the data actually says, we will run into people, these different groups around the world that will jump to their pre-existing perspectives on these kinds of things, especially when the data is confounding and sometimes ambiguous, which of course it's going to be because of what I just talked about. You've got many different groups from different origin sources. If you try to cram that into one data set and say, how do we make sense of this? it's not going to be possible. And people are going to take that unclarity and just go back to their default position that they had. And you're going to have these different groups of humans competing with each other adversarially around these different conceptions. So this is the real challenge. We absolutely are this really key inflection point as a civilization, not just because of what we're encountering here, but as you just alluded to, because the system we've followed up until now, which has served us in some good ways, is now running us into the ground. We are now getting to the point where the sheer volume and intensity of our technological progress dooms us unless we find some way to raise our collective consciousness in terms of the center of gravity of it. So again, what's fascinating though, and I can't look past it, that this, all of this is happening at the same time. That to me is too synchronistic to look beyond. I think that again speaks to some larger overarching community being involved here, even though we don't always recognize that's the case. Absolutely. Yeah. I've used the analogy before of kind of this uh, this vortex, this whirlpool. And if you're on the edge of that whirlpool, the, you almost don't even know that you're moving. It's just you're part of the water. Everything's very calm. But as you get closer to the center, as you get closer to that convergence point, things get very tumultuous. Things are moving very rapidly or you're circling the drain uh, very quickly and you know something is happening. And that's really what we're experiencing now. 
it's obvious that things are happening. The signs are really all around us in our society. Just exclude the UAP topic entirely. There's there's just a lot going on. We're really at a pivotal moment in our history, and uh, it's a tremendous challenge. And and will we have the collective resolve to rise to that challenge and and be willing and open to to not just face it, but challenge the assumptions that have brought us to this point for, to begin with. I mean, you make an excellent point there that, you know, we tend to sort of reduce the phenomena into this very flat explanation. And and that assumes that, that we understand everything else. Like we're, we're approaching the phenomenon as if we've already got the rest of reality figured out. And it's just this one piece, we just need to kind of slot it onto the bookshelf of what we already know. And, and the, the reality, as you know, is that we have the we have poor assumptions about reality from the beginning. So we we've got to basically dismantle the bookshelf, get a whole new set of books, and start over. And that's what the phenomena is really challenging us to do. It's not just sort of how how do we fit this in our current paradigm, but really how do we change the entire thing itself? Absolutely, and that is a good segue into the second part of our conversation today, when we talk about the nature of reality. And you and I have spoken many times on this podcast about idealism versus physicalism. I did a two-part interview with Bernardo Castro, but we talked about that, the implications of that. And this absolutely gets to this, is that we are seeing phenomena that challenge the consensus view. Like you say, I was picturing as we were using that analogy there, of this group of scientists staring at this bookshelf. Like I have this high shelf where I put all my books in my cabin. And I'm imagining them studying, going, does it go in sociology? Does it go in psychology? Does it go in physics? We're not quite sure. And they have this one volume, they're trying to put it there, and they finally decide, we're going to put it here. And the whole shelf collapses. And all the books are cast everywhere. If they're ripped, the pages are ripped out. And and the whole thing catches fire or something like that. Like, <laughs> this is what's left of our model of reality, right? This one thing that you think is just a, or what's that game, you know, where you have to pull out these little pieces without collapsing again? There you go. And so this is the one thing that collapses it. And as you and I were talking about before we started recording, that might be one of the main points of this entire thing is to confound and deconstruct our perspectives. So from a Zen point of view, it's not about what the right answer is. It's about recognizing that your questions are insufficient, that you are locked into a system, which again speaks to what Bernardo talked about in terms of this analogy of with AI systems, you sometimes have to inject new data that will challenge the existing paradigm. You have to actually inject enough new anomalous data that the assumptions that seem to fit before no longer fit, and it behooves the system to make some sort of revolutionary shift, rethink the thing on a really foundational level. That, I would argue, is very much, as Bernardo would say, part of what's going on here. That that might even be the main point of the enterprise, is to confound our existing model to knock us out of that so that we and make the kinds of shifts to help us deal with some of the challenges you spoke to earlier in terms of these civilization-wide challenges we have with environmental collapse and whatnot, that it's going to take a new way of thinking, a really seriously new way of thinking to really take on those challenges. And that will be about undoing some of our assumptions, absolutely. So as we get ready to go into the second part about the nature of reality, we put together a few different things that have been studied for instance, even scientifically, that are very, very interesting and definitely call into question assumptions about physicalism. So we before, we've talked about how we've both been persuaded by this kind of notion. I remember when I first 
told you about Bernardo Castro and said, you should check out these videos. And it, I think for those people who look at it with open eyes, it's, it's quite compelling, the case he makes. But even beyond the cases that he points to, there have been studies that have been done scientifically that seriously call into question the way we thought reality seemed to work. But before we go there, I'd like to get your sense of thinking back to that time where I first mentioned Bernardo Castro to you, and you began to consider not just the UFO phenomenon data, but reality itself and led up this new model and what that process was like for you. What were some of the aha moments for you when you thought about, aha, perhaps this does shed some light and make sense if you look at it from this perspective? It was... Uh... A lot to, to grok all at once. Um, those of you who haven't yet looked at that course um, from the Essentia Foundation, you can find it on YouTube. It's a six-part course um, from Bernardo. Highly recommend it. Great place to start. Does a great job breaking things down. Uh, it, it's not a 30-minute presentation by any means. It's several hours of material. So, you know, find a good cup of coffee and a comfy place to sit and, uh, and, and get through it. But it really did make an impact on me. It was one of those things where it clarifies feelings that you have about the world that you couldn't articulate very well before. So you know, for me personally, and I've shared this with, with you and with, you know, on many, many different podcast discussions, uh, growing up in that religious context and, and looking at the way the world functioned and the way that uh, we're taught about how the world functions, I really had no place to slot my religious beliefs, you know, in, in, into that uh, system. Uh, and I tried very hard. I, I, I tried with a lot of different theological models that were willing to push the boundaries there, um, willing to to make room for our scientific discovery and kind of make, make sense of it all. But as, as much as I tried, I couldn't get it to work. I couldn't really fit or make space for phenomenal experience that, that had been shared with me or even the subtle phenomenal experiences that I've had in my own life. They just didn't quite work and and were left with in that fiscal and I writing them off, you know, sort of saying, these are just uh, coincidences or these are, you know, flights of the fancy. Uh, everybody's wrong and and they all just misheard what they, uh, you know, they misremember what they saw. Uh, it, it really kind of is a, a quite cynical view on human experience. And that was really the backpack that I was carrying around with me uh, for quite some time. But idealism really helps me to make space for the broad range of human experience that has been recounted. It doesn't mean that I believe everything at face value, everything's on the table. I, I certainly don't think so, but it does allow me to make space for that in a way that the physicalist paradigm certainly did not. So I'm still exploring. I'm still learning more about that perspective, um, certainly from the works of Bernardo Castro, but also, as you know, Donald Hoffman and others who are leading that charge to getting us to think about reality from these different perspectives. And I, I very much feel that they're on the right track, that they they are pushing these ideas at the right time in our history uh, and that they're, and they're catching on. I think a lot of people are recognizing, just like I did, that there's a lot of potential here with looking at the world in this way, it, it really re-enchants the way you look at the world. It, it brings it, for me anyway, a lot more alive uh, than it used to be. Not this sort of cold, distant, uh, inanimate objects all around me and life is kind of meaningless and everything, but it really makes me connected to 
the full scope and span of experience itself in a deep, intimate way that I, that was just not present before. And it changes the way that I look at kind of every experience that, that I have, whether it's the mundane or or the exciting or whatever it is, it changes the way that I, I think about them and interpret them. And, uh, you know, it makes me excited. It makes me excited for, you know, indie experience, quite frankly, because every experience is a chance to participate in this uh, sort of deep reality that we all share. Absolutely. I think that a way to put it is that it's the redeeming of conscious experience of human beings, for sure. And towards the end, we can sort of both share a little bit about other ways that we've been impacted by it and how it's changed our experience of life, basically. But let's dive into some of the data and some of the implications so people know what we're talking about here. But before we go into a couple of those examples, I want to pick up on what you mentioned there with Donald Hoffman being another key figure in this. I really think it's these two figures, Bernardo Kastrup and Don Hoffman together, and how they are sort of dovetailing on each other in terms of doing different work in different fields, Bernardo in philosophy and Don in psychology, but both really speaking to the same underlying structure about reality, at least potentially. And I think one of the real aha moments for me and for other people who look into this is recognizing that the reason why the scientific method might work is not because we are actually discovering and investigating and making conclusions about reality, but that we're making conclusions based on data about our perceptions. So we have a shared perceptual field because we're the same species. It's not surprising that a horse looks like to a horse to me, like a horse looks to you. But of course, we have similar ancestral background. And so we have inherited the same perceptual set. And the ancestors who didn't see things that way died out. And Don Hoppin's been very clear about evolution being pretty ruthless that way. If you don't have advantageous ways of seeing the world, which means the shortcutted ways of seeing the world, the reconstructed false reality in some ways that gives you enough of an idea of what's going on that you can navigate, but would otherwise being an incredibly complex barrage of data that's too much to make sense of for these monkeys trying to make their way through the world. So that's fascinating to me because what it does is it actually helps explain how physics has been so efficacious is because we actually have been able to transform the world because as Bernardo would say, even if physics is just a study of our perception, within our perception is the parts of us that can impinge on the dissociative boundary. And what Bernardo means by that is we have certain faculties that allow us to impact the world around us. And if you think about the reality as we see it is really more of a shared dreamscape. Let's assume that for a second. And in Bernardo's model, that would be held in mind at large or the mind of God, basically. And so that's why I see a horse, you see a horse. Of course, there are exceptions to the rule with the UFO phenomenon. We'll come back to that in a second. But generally speaking, I see a horse, you see a horse. We're going to describe the color similarly, et cetera, because that dreamscape is held in mind at large, not in either one of our minds specifically. So that helps understand how you could study that, and that's going to have a coherence to it that you can actually show with the scientific method, and that using our different faculties, we can actually impinge upon the boundaries beyond our individual consciousness and change the world or change the dreamscape, if you will. And we've managed to change the natural environment as we've seen fit. And then we have all the modern marbles of the modern world because of that. And so in other words, it makes sense of all that. It doesn't pretend that doesn't exist. We have changed the natural world in many ways. We've revolutionized how we interact with 
reality, basically. But that doesn't change the fact that underlyingly, what reality actually is might be something very, very different than that. And Don Hoppen's work has said that in the game theory work they've done, he's saying there's basically a 0% chance that what we perceive of reality is indicative of the way things really are, which just to make it really clear to everybody, the assumption in science, and again, this is the key word, assumption, this is an unrecognized assumption. Because of that shared reality space we, we inhabit, we assume these things, these are intuitions we have, that we would say, absolutely, we don't see all of reality, but we assume that what we do perceive of reality is a subslice of the total, that it's actually a veridical kind of understanding of the way things really are. But what Hoffman's made clear is that no, not at all. In the same way, the trash icon on your desktop screen is not at all indicative of the actual underlying binary code and zeros and ones, et cetera, that make up an email that you put into your trash can. All it is is a re-representation in a much more truncated way, dumbed down way, that a monkey can go, I know that if I drag this thing over here, that thing go disappear, right? That's basically what's happening. So in a way, it's a bit of a a shock to the system because we assume that we're operating in the real world. But what this is saying is that actually base reality is going to be something very, very different. And when you start even trying to think about what it would be like, the challenge is it's not even spatiotemporal at all. So this gets back to Bernardo's talk, You know his conversations around when you have extension, you have space and time. But Prior to that, there is no such thing as space and time. So you can't describe it visually or talk about how long it takes and those kinds of things. As Bernardo and other people have pointed out, to talk about what happened, quote unquote, before the Big Bang is a nonsensical question because there was no before, before the Big Bang, according to the way we understand space and time as an extension of that. So these are some things to think about. First of all, before we get into some of the other studies that have been done that definitely point to the fact that something going on in reality is much weirder than we've been accounting for up until now. But what's your reflection when you think about their work together and how that's really helped to shine a light on a reality that we can't quite see? It's like pointing into a fog, but there's enough evidence there that it's compelling to a lot of people. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly a challenge um, because every step of the way in when they're making their argumentation and laying it out, you realize how much you've been trained to counteract what they're saying and how difficult it actually is to reframe your perspective with the assumptions that idealism brings to the table versus the, the, the physicalist model. So you're still kind of taking your toolkit of physicalism to interpret or translate idealism so that ultimately it's just kind of like a soft idealism. It's still within the same wheelhouse of, of your physicalist worldview, but you kind of on the surface level, understand what the idealist is saying. It's it's just really, really challenging. And I think it will always be challenging for those of us that have basically been born into a world where that was the model we were given. Um, I, I thought while you were talking about an analogy that, um, I don't know, it just came to my mind, but it's essentially is we have this assumption and we'd like to think that humans, the way that we perceive the world is sort of like the proper way that it is actually to be perceived. And we, we forget that like take an insect, for example, the way that it navigates its its world is it, through totally different means of navigation and understanding and comprehension than the, the way that we do. Now we would we would study them. In fact, people do. They study insects and look at, oh, it looks like they're following a chemical trail from here to there and, and doing this. But 
But, you know, strange things still happen where, where there's almost like this weird re- retention of memory across a variety of insects that, you know, that they have a, they're greater as a whole than they are as the individual. And it's very confusing how that would even be true, even with the kind of chemical connections. The point being there that we're overlaying our understanding of how navigation works and, and chemistry works onto them. But the way that they perceive and, and experience reality is entirely different. It's not even in the same wheelhouse as our own. And so it's, um, you know, we've kind of done a nice job. Like you said, we've had a lot of progress and we've been able to, to accomplish a lot of things with this, with this model and understanding, but ultimately it's not how things truly are. And this, for me, idealism is kind of pushing us on, on that frontier to expanding the way we understand about reality and, and allowing us to reframe the way that we are engaging, not only with ourselves, but the world itself. Absolutely. And I think that beyond it being a very compelling model in terms of how it makes sense of the data, I think what's really exciting about it that's impacted both of us and many, many others is that it re-enchants reality. It, as Bernardo would say, puts us back into the frame as being important players, that we're not just this anomalous accident in nature that has no meaning and purpose kind of thing. He talked about how in a physicalist model, we are kind of the exception to the rule and an anomaly. And we have this notion that we exist and that our thoughts are important and real and what we feel is important and real. And physicalism wants to say to us, no, that's all basically just gobbledygook. This is all accidental firings of neurons, which are just certain configurations of particles, etc. When those particles dissolve, there's nothing to you that never was. And then they ask us to go through the world trying to be productive members of society with that kind of purposeless existence behind that. So what idealism does is it puts us back in the picture. And I would say marrying this now to ancient Vedantic thought and even some of the messages from these others, and this is where we can bring the UFO phenomenon in again, is that, as I've said many times, I see this as a stage for the evolution of consciousness. So in some ways, it completely fits for me that you would have these basically virtual realities of spatial extension, time, those kinds of things would be built into the stage the same way that you have props that you would bring into a stage to make it compelling that it feels like the characters in the play, that things are really happening. And so in the same way, I would say that what this points to is that this is not base reality, but that doesn't matter. That doesn't make it less significant. It makes it more significant because it reminds you that we are here because it's about the evolution of our consciousness and our interactions and therefore the evolution of our collective consciousness, which speaks back to what you were saying about insects and whatnot. So that's the part that's exciting for me is that it opens up the possibility that this doesn't have to be some to the sideline kind of fringe view of some religious people, but actually this says that of reality itself, it's pointing to the fact that this seems to be a construct And that begs the question, for what reason? Why would the construct exist? And then again, you marry that to ancient Vedantic teachings, the teachings of these various others, channeled messages that have come through. And what it makes clear is that this is about a stage set for the evolution of consciousness, which I think is the ultimate redemption of conscious experience. So rather than seeing as some fluke, some accident, we can say, not only is it meaningful, but it's the main reason we're here to begin with. And then when we think about even how we want to move forward as a civilization, trying to overcome some of the challenges we have, 
I think looking at it from that kind of lens can change some things. And as you and I, I think, would agree, we have to have a fundamentally different way of seeing things to be able to overcome some of these challenges. But in terms of some of the information or data that's come out that is confounding to a physicalist perspective, let's discuss a few of those. So first of all, we've got within the UFO phenomenon, things like telepathy that happens. It's amazing how rare it is to come across an experience where people have with these others and they talk in auditory tones kind of thing. It's mostly telepathic. And what's interesting is we even see evidence from Dean Radin's work and whatnot that human beings also have this capacity amongst themselves. So on the one hand, you could have someone like Mike Masters point to the fact that we are an early version of a gray alien in the future. And therefore, that's why we both have that base capacity. Theirs is just more adaptive than ours is further along. But you could also argue just as easily that, again, if this is a stage set for consciousness and that this is just a construct that's somewhat illusory and the fundamental aspect of it is consciousness itself, then again, using Bernardo's kind of thinking with us being disassociated alters of original source consciousness or ultimate mind, not only are we able to be telepathic with each other, but ultimately we are the same thing. So that also explains why we see similar things and whatnot. And that opens up many, many possibilities. So you've got psi phenomena that is front and center. That's why I've talked about it so much on point of convergence, and I call it the point of convergence. And you've got near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, encounters with these others, and these many things happening that seem to challenge physicalist perspectives. I think, again, about what's interesting with the UFO phenomenon is you have the added piece about they seem to not only be able to be just players on the stage, but they seem to know how to edit the stage itself. So these props of spatial and temporal extension, they can edit those specifically, and they can cater to the individual consciousness of a person. So I had an interesting interaction with Joseph Burks this week, where we know that he's put together this model of but a virtual kind of expression of these others. And sometimes, in fact, most of the time, he would argue, when we're seeing a UFO, it's not actually up there. It's not a metallic craft. It's actually just a projection virtually because they're more interested in how they're going to impact our consciousness. And I responded to him in saying, absolutely, that's one possibility. But I would argue based on, again, the compelling case that you can make for idealism, that all of reality is a construct. Everything we see, this table, this person I see looking at my screen right now, all of that's a virtual construct. This is somehow a way that I can interact with the conscious agent, to use Don Hoffman's terminology now, that is Nathan, that is not really here, but is represented by this avatar. This is how it works. So what's interesting is it makes sense to me that as we think about how these others could be so much further along than us, many of them, again, not all of them, but many of them. We talked about earlier how Abi Loeb and the standard scientists and astrophysicists are going to have a hard time even asking large enough questions to grapple with this. What makes sense to me is that as they become much more advanced, and I basically had this a real sense that came to me, not only do you have external technology that advances, but you have internal interiority advances that happen as well, a kind of inner science where consciousness itself becomes a kind of technology. And therefore, you would have this understanding not just of how to move matter around like we're interested in doing, but you could actually get to the undergirding substructure of what appears in the extensions of space and time and operate there in sort of the source code, which would end up looking like missing time or things that seem to skip across the sky and disappear, those kinds of things. 
So for me, that seems logical, actually, seems likely that a species that would be thousands or millions of years ahead would be at that level, where they're well beyond now trying to have woodworking classes and constructing cabins and whatnot, tables. They're actually working on the substructure prior to the extension of space and time. And that alone is what really compellingly makes sense of the data we're seeing with the UFO phenomenon with NDEs, OBEs, et cetera. Yeah, I, I you know, completely agree. And if, if you've ever had the experience of being in a in an enclosed room and a, and a bird flies into the room, if you've ever had that experience, but you know, a lot of us probably have, a bird comes into a, a manufactured space, they're clearly out of their element and the windows open, the doors are open, they just, they make a wrong turn and they, they're inside the building now. And uh, everyone in the room is essentially looking at the bird and, you know, just being kind of like, just go out the open window, like just fly out the window, fly out the door. It's right there. It's there the whole time. But to the bird, again, not navigating the space and the way that we see it. It's the same thing I'm thinking about here. You're describing this for, for these others that they may be like, we would be in the room and we're the ones that we're the bird. You know, they're, they're looking at us in a way almost with, with a sense of, um, you know, pity, you know, that it's sad that they just don't know. They can just kind of go back out the window and explore the world as it really is. They're stuck in a world that, that they have defined and they kind of stumbled on it in a way almost by accident or they forced it upon them themselves. So it's, um, it's truly fascinating. And I think because the possibility space includes this, it explains why we would bump into it. It explains why we would be encountering these these oddities, these things that fall outside what we would call normal experience, because reality is broader than what we've allowed it to be. And so that's exactly what the phenomenon is doing. It's it's not sort of saying to us, hey, learn more about our technology so you can just, you know, again, slot it onto your bookshelf. But but as you said, get a new bookshelf. Like everything that you think you knew is wrong. And we're, we're sort of the very fact that you're experiencing us at all is pointing to the fact that you don't understand it. So it, it, pays, it poses some very, very strong challenges to us, particularly to our current institutions. You talked about academics in terms of like how far can they actually go in their academic uh, sort of uh, institutions and what they're willing to kind of stake their reputations on. Versus those of us who might be more, I guess what I would say, on the kind of experimentalist wing of, of the thought, right? So you have those that might be proposing idealism and, and the kind of signaling to their cohort, this is what it is, is the philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. So this is how I fit this into the model that you're comfortable with other academics, whereas those of us who aren't and maybe more comfortable just taking the concepts and then putting them into practice out in the world. Yeah, there's quite a, a difference there. And I don't know, could you speak to that a little bit in your own experience? I know that you, you certainly thought about that and, and are really working hard to put some of these concepts into practice. Absolutely. I think this is where the rubber hits the road for me. It's that the implications of the UFO phenomenon and the implications of psi phenomena and near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, etc., are the most compelling for me. Because if this is about this being a stage set for the evolution of consciousness, then how can we meet that halfway? How can we really engage with that? And for me, it's this recognition that 
if we assume that we are actually all connected, that we all are fractal impressions of source consciousness, because again, the evidence seems to be pointing to that. It's not just that these ancient Eastern traditions talked about it and it sounds nice. It's that quantum mechanical experiments seem to point to this. There's this famous quote that Niels Bohr is quoted as saying this. He said, quote, everything we call real is made of things that cannot be regarded as real, unquote, which is a fascinating statement. Again, to me, it sounds like someone saying, that's not actually a bookcase. That's a prop that the Department of Internal Affairs in terms of the Adjustment Bureau or whatever, put in place so that you would go about your life in such a way that you would encounter this kind of catalyst. We're mixing metaphors here. Now we've got the raw material coming in. This would be the the tension you would feel in life that you're supposed to learn through the process of going through that, believing that bookcase is real. So it's not that I take the perspective that some people do, which is that, oh no, so actually this is all a construct living on the hard drive of some alien civilization somewhere. It's not that, it's that the very nature of reality itself underlyingly is about these all being different kinds of dreamscapes set for the evolution of consciousness where source itself explores every possible different opportunity of expression, of manifestation. So when you think about that, it really changes how you think about things as you and I have talked about before. When we wrestle with the most challenging aspects of what our culture is going through, what our civilization is facing in terms of extinction level events that we talk about. You look at it very differently if you see this as a stage set for the evolution of consciousness. And if you look at it so that there are no coincidences, again, thinking back to Bernardo's conversation with me when he talked about Jung's perspective on synchronicity. And Jung and Pauli came to the conclusion that all there is is synchronicity. And just when you take the average of all these different events, amongst different people, you get something that looks like causality or something or determinism. But underlyingly, there's just these synchronistic connections where these underlying database of meaning connections is really what's in play here. And even in my really profound experiences I've had mystically, that's very much been communicated to me. So when you think about that, you look at it differently. You say, so if we're facing these really deep challenges, it's like you think about someone who writes a plot of a Star Wars movie or something. There has to be the Darth Vader. There has to be the Darth Maul. There has to be the challenge that they're facing where they have to find a way to blow up the Death Star so that there's the evolution of consciousness, so that courage is encouraged and standing up against the empire that wants to dominate and oppress. So in the same way, you have a situation where maybe we came in to a time where our civilization is facing these massive challenges because for the very reason that is that stage that was set for the evolution of consciousness. So in other words, we chose really intense catalyst for the sake of really intense change and evolution. So I understand for some people that's going to be a stretch, but at least begin to think about that possibility that rather than just looking at it and saying, how unlucky are we that we're the ones born into this time where these civilization collapsing kind of situations are arising and say, what if it's the opposite way around? What if you actually were so interested, not just you, but maybe even this council of others that were responsible for your evolution, believe that putting you into a situation like this would serve not only your development in terms of being the kind of catalyst through which you could really grow, but that the whole would benefit as a result as well. So when you think about the real implications of this, beyond just the surface implications, it changes how you think about everything. And it certainly has changed how I think about 
reality of why I'm here and what I plan to do. And that's why Essence of Being has been so front and center for me because it's really about, yes, the UFO phenomenon is fascinating. Yes, near-death experiences are fascinating. Why is it that people's worldviews can massively shift overnight where they have no fear of death, where they are not concerned with material goods anymore because they see it as a bunch of stage props? Why would I go buy a Ferrari when it's basically no different than a car on Grand Theft Auto, as Don Hoffman would say? He literally looks at it that way. And even Don Hoffman has said when he really meditates, and he meditates for hours a day because he's so convinced that this is real, that even though he knows his everyday intuitions when you're driving in traffic and you're frustrated that that guy cuts you off, it's hard to keep that in mind. But the reason why he meditates several hours a day is to be able to sort of rise up above the clouds and remember this actually below everything there is the construct. The way things really are is up here and everything up here is connected. I even heard him speak recently about if more of us had that kind of perspective, suddenly all the problems in the world would go away. You would not need to work for money. You wouldn't value money the way we do now. We wouldn't be fighting over what was perceived as a scarcity of resources because again, those are just props. I'm not saying this to try to diminish the importance of life here. Actually, completely the opposite. I'm saying it's absolutely redeemed under this kind of model. But it's important to have the absolute perspective in the midst of the relative perspective to be able to live the relative life in a way that's really empowering ultimately. That's the way that I look at it anyway. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to use like a gaming analogy here because you brought up Grand Theft Auto. It's like the boss fight, right? So you, you got to prepare for the boss fight. And if you aren't prepared, you fail and you have to try again. And once you finally beat the boss, you generally know how to navigate the game better than you did before. And what happens then? Well, you have another boss fight that you've got to overcome. So you have to learn new tools, new skill sets, new ways of get, getting through that. And oftentimes, beyond just raw experience, like brute force going in and having to fight that over and over again, oftentimes the better way to, to win there is to step back and observe the world, the paradigm that, that your character happens to be in, the tools that you already have at your disposal, the mechanics that, that you that you can do in the game. Really observe them, think about them before you go into the encounter. And if you do that, it changes the way that you that you experience the encounter entirely. You might think of novel ways of overcoming that obstacle that, that you wouldn't have thought of before by just going in there and kind of blindly hacking away at, at the obstacle. So anyway, it's a, as, as a gamer myself, it's, I think it's a fun analogy. It also points to me the fact that there's this inner desire that we have to make manifest in our world these same principles. I mean, it's like, why, why do we create these kinds of you know, games and forms of entertainment? Why do we have religions that, that uh, exhibit them themselves in certain ways and kind of uh, have certain core principles about them? That's because at the core of who we really are, we have these, these common yearnings to be part of this source to, to mature in our ability to understand our, our circumstance and to rise above that circumstance. And we want to do that in a way that is that reduces the harm as much as possible, but we recognize that there is a place for harm. There is a place for uh, obstacles and challenges and trauma in that development itself. Thus, we have to introduce those things you know, in, into the paradigms that we, that we, we create. 
um, it's, you know, it's a fascinating way to look at the world. It certainly changes the way that I look at, you know, my interpersonal relationships. It even changes the way I think about my past. And, and I know we've talked about that uh, many times as well, just, you know, how we got to where we are now, um, thinking about our lives before this and how they are really connected to who we are at this moment and, and, and prepared us for the work that we're doing on this show and in other places. Uh, in ways that we really would never have imagined back then, but now looking back, it, it is much clearer how it all fits together. And not only just sort of that historical perspective, but you and I both think about it from a future perspective, that there is a, a kind of a future version of reality that maybe we aren't experiencing directly, but is but impacts the now, like it's it, it, because they're all connected. And so when you when you walk into the world when you when you be in the world with this perspective it, it really does give you kind of a a more dynamic it enhances the dimensionality of the experience just like a, a 3d object is an enhanced experience of a 2d object you get to see it from all these different perspectives then it's interesting in light of what you just said there that people who've been on psilocybin or dmt sometimes report being able to see something beyond just three dimensions. And when people say, can you describe that? They would say, well, no, because in this construct, we're back in three dimensions. So how can I possibly do that any more than a two-dimensional frame could make sense of a three-dimensional kind of situation, which is really fascinating because it speaks to the fact that, again, when you get outside the evolutionarily derived construct that Don Hoffman talks about, we even can experience dimensions and realities and variables and parameters that we can't even conceive of within this construct. And sometimes it takes meditation, again, be able to rise outside of the usual ego brain way of navigating the world, or even sometimes these different plant medicines can help us get outside of the usual kind of default thinking as well. And then we actually encounter more of what reality actually is, not less. But a couple of points I wanted to make that I think speak to this notion we've been saying that this is not just nice ideas, but the data itself seems to be pointing in these directions. So one thing that's been really fascinating to me is I've been reading this book called The Power of Eight by Lynn McTaggart, which I'd really recommend to people. She is a journalist who basically came in skeptically wondering how mental intention alone could change reality, quote unquote, impact physical reality. But she became convinced of it because of the data. Again, she studied it, she analyzed it. They did it scientifically. She worked with people who had been really rigorous about these kinds of protocols. And they found that group intention really does seem to change reality. And again, you'll be familiar from the Expanding Awareness course. We talk a lot about this, this shared field of intention. When people come together in a shared purpose, it not only impacts us, but it changes the construct itself which again would completely follow if something like idealism is actually the nature of affairs rather than physicalism. So some of the things that they actually would study and test and see how group intention would change things would be something like water. So they would take two glasses of water. Again, they would randomly choose one. And other than that, the water is exactly the same. And they would try to lower the acidity level of one of the cups of water just with intention. And they didn't even have to have the water in front of them. They could just have a picture of water on a website and say, I want you to direct your intention to this and just focus on reducing the acidity of this water. And it worked. They literally would analyze the chemical nature of the two cups of water, again, that were chosen randomly. 
And each time, the one where the intention was directed, the acidity level would lower, which of course, when you then pair that with, as they did, trying to grow plants and whatnot in these different conditions, they could, again, not just help the plant grow faster than another one, but they could directly impact the specific variables, the sunlight and the water composition and things like that that helped it grow. Furthermore, even more shockingly in some ways, the plants in the vicinity that weren't getting that attention seem to almost show signs of neglect, like some sort of collective intelligence of the plants knew that some of them were getting this attention and others weren't. So this is really fascinating. There's no way that physicalism can make sense of this. Then you also have things happen, and you and I have talked about this before, being in church circles in our history, where people do the laying on of hands, if we would say in my traditions, of trying to heal people of various sicknesses. And again, you talked about kind of coming from a church background and then running into a physicalist kind of paradigm and beginning to think all of that was just wishful thinking and whatnot, perhaps the placebo effect sometimes, that kind of thing. But what was interesting about this book is that this was not about religious people or religious circles at all. It was just people coming together. The reason why, by the way, that they call it the power of eight is that it was found that there's something particularly interesting about a group that's eight or more that has a particularly efficacious way of impacting reality. So they would pray for someone and sure enough, people's different conditions would get better. But what's even more interesting and somewhat counterintuitive is that there was just a strong, if not stronger impact about if you were one of the people praying for someone else, your health would improve, which was not even your intention. They would, as again, just looking at all the variables, we talked about OSAP earlier, they would analyze all the results, all the data, and try to make sense of what's going on. They didn't for a second hypothesize that by praying for someone, you were going to get healthier, but that's exactly what happened. That change was even more dramatic and significantly dramatic that was measurable than the other way around which is absolutely fascinating. And it's not even just physical ailments also. It could even be someone suffering from depression, right? Which again, physicalism wants just to reduce to the way that neuronal connections are working and neurotransmitter chemical interactions in your brain, right? And yet they found that just by directing positivity, a group of people directing positivity towards someone, they would feel better. So we talked a lot about in the Expanding Awareness course being cognizant of our own energetic signature and being much more aware about how we are impacting the world by how we show up, not just by the words we speak, the actions we take, but the energy we bring with us. All of this speaks to this. This is not new age nonsense. This is demonstrable even in the data and these kinds of things. And as one final example from this book, I'll give you an example of just how wide ranging this is. They were concerned about warfare in the Middle East. And after 9-11, they were really concerned that there was this adversarial kind of relationship between the Muslim world and Western countries. So they got together this group of people and they went into a specific Muslim country and they talked to them about this and talked about how could we come together and share an intention that would create a fabric of cohesion that would change the world some way. And so they had this group of people come together and suddenly there was so much sharing of information and saying, I apologize that we've seen you this way. Oh, we apologize that we didn't do more in this situation. Like an, an owning and a real sharing of responsibility and an undoing of these divisions that have existed basically. And then they had these groups say, how could we even take it one step further beyond this feel good sense of us being connected now? But how might that 
cohesion impact the world? And so what they did was they basically had positive intention directed towards Afghanistan at a particular period of time. And specifically that there would be more harmony amongst the different divisive groups that were there. And sure enough, getting hard data from the United Nations and these different actual organizations that were unattached to them, but that would keep data, statistics around the number of fatalities that had arisen because of war and that kind of thing. Sure enough, there was a dramatic drop in the number of fatalities resulting from war and whatnot and division in Afghanistan at the very time they were doing this intention. And again, they tried to control for as many variables as possible. So this was not fast and loose. They really were trying to scientifically investigate this. And again, just time and time and time again, it was demonstrated in all these different ways that a shared field of collective intelligence and intention can change the nature of the world, which again, the point here is that if idealism is the case, where we actually have this shared dreamscape, or we too, just like some of these ascendant others that can impact space-time itself, when we come together with this degree of intelligence and shared field of intention, we too can change the fabric of space-time itself. We too can start moving those props around in ways we thought were impossible beforehand. Yeah, one of the, uh, that's really truly fascinating and, and I'm grateful that that research has been done because it does change the way that I think about my uh, religious upbringing and, and certainly participating in, in that kind of activity. Uh, and and, and you know, I can tell you from first-hand experience, as I'm sure you can as well, it, it's not like it's, this is not a, a panacea by any means. Um, you know, I've had plenty of instances where, you know, someone was, uh, you know, very ill and, and they didn't recover. You know, the effort was done or the, you know, the intention was there. And, and I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that uh, before we kind of go into some other matters, because that's a common critique that you'll hear is that, oh, you know, the idealists, they just, uh, if they just all kind of get together and think about the reality is a, a certain way, well, then they just think reality is going to be like that. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the, the sort of stickiness of the, the shared dreamscape and maybe the ways in which this uh, group intentionality can or cannot affect that sort of underlying or, or core stickiness that, that happens to be in place. I very much believe that it is, that is a... Um, a positive influence or not even positive, but it, it can directly influence. But I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are from, you know, just responding to that critique of folks that say, well, you know, here they go again. I just think that, you know, they, if they all think this, then you know, they can bend a spoon in the middle of a room or whatever if they want to. Absolutely. That's a great point. And I can think of examples from my history where this happened too. And I think one thing to first make a distinguishing comment about is that the key is the the intention, but also the power of the consciousness behind it. So as an example, we talked about in the Expanding Awareness course. And by the way, for those people who are interested, it's going to be offered again in about a month. So that'll be announced soon. But one of the things we talked about was that you have these different stages of consciousness development that are measurable across the world and are predictable. If one culture is at a certain level at a warrior red stage, you can predict what's going to come next. And this has been proven in many, many cultures around the world. This is not wishful thinking. This is demonstrable data, basically. But what happens there is that the most ascendant consciousness stages, which are emergence in themselves, they seem to sort of auto-magically just appear on the stage that we, again, in just walking out along this stage that's been set for us, 
new possibilities emerge that weren't even imagined before. And so what you end up having is that, for instance, you take the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement happened in a time in our country where that was not the majority perspective. And yet it still won the day because there's a disproportionate amount of power, of resonance, of energetic resonance. That's the key again. It's about energy that sways the entire system, even though it's a minority at the time, which is to say that the most emergent stages of consciousness are disproportionately powerful. So that's something to keep in mind here. I say that because not every group of eight people that get together are going to be equal. Like it does matter the kind of quality and evolution of consciousness you have worked towards over time. And the more you actually have something close to a non-dual perspective where you literally see us all being connected, that will change the efficaciousness of your intention along with other people around you. So it's important to keep that in mind that it Again, I know that in postmodern culture, there's this kind of flattening of hierarchies of all hierarchies, not just oppressor hierarchies, but growth hierarchies too. But growth hierarchies exist. It's part of nature. We see it everywhere. Something that we should recognize and welcome. And it's one thing to say that all human beings are equally recognized and that things like universal human rights should be recognized. Absolutely. But not everyone has cultivated the same degree of consciousness. People like the Buddha and Jesus and Ramana Maharshi and these different people across history clearly have punched through a threshold and opened up new possibilities of emergent kind of consciousness for all of humanity. So that's important to keep in mind, first of all, is that the people involved does matter. That really does make a difference. Secondly, I think it's really important that people don't fall for this notion that there's some sort of magic incantation. And that can kind of happen in some religious circles where people say, and you and I have talked about this, how you gonna get this man myth monument kind of progression in religion where one person had an initial magical encounter, whether it was with beings that we would call aliens or gods or whatever, but they had a transformative experience. Others were caught fire by the way that person passionately talked about that experience. And then three generations on you go, okay, let's write this down so we make sure we follow the right rules. And it turns into a book and then you've robbed a lot of that original spirit, that energetic resonance, right? And then you get people saying, well, it looks like this group prayed this way. So we better do it exactly like this and make sure we follow this magical incantation. I gave the example before about the vineyard church began in Southern California. So people would, wouldn't quite touch someone's skin because it was hot out. It was uncomfortable. And then people could be in Alaska and Anchorage and doing the same thing because they think it's magically important that you don't actually touch the skin. It was just a practical matter. So you get those kinds of things. I remember another example where we did this inter-church faith service one time and we were praying for various things. And after we'd finished praying, this one guy said, hold the bus, everybody. In that last prayer, we didn't finish with in the name of Jesus. So it didn't get beyond the ceiling. He literally said that our prayers didn't get beyond the ceiling because we didn't speak the magic incantation in the right way. So for him, it was less about the energetic resonance and more about you follow a formula. And that's what I'm saying it's not about. So number one, it matters who's involved in the actual intention. In the same way that meditators are able to, like seasoned meditators that spend decades meditating, when scientists study them, their brains are doing things that other people's brains do not do. In other words, it matters that you commit to these things and that there really are demonstrable changes that happen over time, not just for the quality of your own inner experience, but the way that that meditative qualitative difference could impact how you could actually help others. If you have people who are deep meditators that come around together 
to have shared intention for healing or for some sort of social change they want to see happen. There's even more evidence that that's more efficacious than just eight people from the random population kind of thing. So all this matters. It matters who's sending the intention that you actually cultivate this energetic awareness over time, that you actually, first of all, have to become cognizant of what energetic resonance is, how you become more aware of your own energetic signature and also aware of other ones that want to impact you. And you become much more cognizant and responsible about that. And also recognizing it's not about formulas, it's about the underlying energy and distinguishing that and knowing the difference between that is really important as well. The other thing I would say is that there are larger plot points sometimes in play here that we're not aware of. There are other kinds of beings, other kinds of intelligences overseeing this particular construct that might have ends in mind that don't fit with what we think the end should be because we don't have full understanding from this perspective, from this construct. So that's important to keep in mind too. It's not always a failure of the people with the intention when something doesn't happen the way we want it to. It can sometimes be that the way this is supposed to work out from the larger perspective is just different than what we would prefer, again, based on our limited understanding from this point of view. Yeah, I, yeah, there are parts of this that, that I certainly, and I've shared with this with you many times, that you know I've struggled with um, kind of just really understanding or, or you know, mapping onto my own experience. Um, you know, one, one area that I've shared, you know, sort of a struggle of mine is, you know, thinking about the word of growth and how, you know, sometimes people take a perspective on this that what what they often hear you saying and what I, what I might've heard you say at some point is, you know, it's just, you're a better person if you are, you know, at this tier rather than the tier below it, that there's this kind of hierarchy of, uh, value you, you know, if you will, if you're, if you're leveled up versus leveled down. But when you say, when you use the word growth, I kind of think of more of it in terms of change and, and thinking of it from the perspective of, uh, an organism, just like, you know, a human being or a plant, uh, you know, as a plant grows, it, it's just changing. It's still the same plant and it can't become a flowering plant before it's, it's a seed, you know, it has to start and, and progresses in a certain way. And we value that entire process. It again kind of speaks to some things we talked about earlier in, in the episode that we we have this very weirdly skewed uh, perspective on on value, what it is important, and, we, and like the end goal is often what we place the most primacy on, rather than the entire process, the entire journey. And you know, I, as you and I have talked about this, you know, further, as I've shared these frustrations with you, you've reminded me that there there really is this. Uh, kind of joy, value, uh, quality at each layer of the, of the spiral, each layer of the process that you can't, I mean, you can't skip a grade, right? That's a different way, way to put it, right? You can't uh, just really advance without having gone through that process. So every stage is equally important and valuable. And, and I, I say all that because it's important for us to recognize in, in the other whether that is your your friend, your partner, your colleague, you know, an alien, whatever it might be that you're interacting with, it's important to recognize within them, you know, where you are to them, and value their, where they are in their journey, just as you would want to be valued by them in return. It, it's not coming at that in exchange by uh, taking kind of a uh, a mallet to them and saying, you know, be like this, let me beat it into you. Like I did, you know, skip these grades and just be like this. And then you'll be quote unquote better. 
like that that's really the wrong perspective here it's um it, it's so competitive and i think that that is not really the point to this at all i, I just would wonder if you could speak to some of that because i think that's probably not a, an uncommon perspective from an outsider looking into some of the things that you just shared. Yeah, absolutely. And it's an important point of distinction to make because it's sort of like saying a third grader is less important than a 12th grader. Of course, we don't think that way at all. The bottom line is that according to this model, and again, this is indicated not only by ancient Vedantic tradition, Buddhist understanding in many ways, the implications of quantum mechanical experiments anyway, and also what many of these most ascendant others point out to us time and time again, is that we are all equally expressions of source consciousness. So in that sense, everyone is completely equal. There is no better than. And if the entire thing is about just source exploring every different permutation, every possibility, then of course, it's like saying, absolutely, Pac-Man is better than Pitfall. Is it? I mean, isn't that just kind of a perspective and a subjective? Of course it is. And that's okay. In other words, there's a certain subjectivity to this, and it kind of redeems subjective experience as well. Again, we're back to the full breadth of conscious experience being redeemed here. And we also have, because time is not a real thing, it's just one of the props in this stage, we have, quote unquote, as long as we need to work this out and come to this understanding of how we're all connected and whatnot. There's not really any wrong answers. That's the whole point that's so different than traditional Western religion is there's no God on a cloud waiting to hammer you because you're doing the wrong thing. We are all source exploring every possibility. We are the expression of the Godhead, right? We are the ground of being in manifest form, exploring all the different possibilities. And from our own experience, again, the honoring of conscious experience, the centrality of conscious experience is because of the consequences of our actions, especially when we begin to recognize how we are connected to everyone. And when I do something in acting out of a sense of scarcity that actually hurts someone else or puts them in a lesser position than I'm in, then I'm actually ultimately hurting myself. So as I often say in the course and whatnot, is that this is about recognizing that just like your left arm wouldn't attack your right arm because it's reaching for a piece of cake because you realize it's going into the same body. When you start seeing that not only are we individual expressions, of source consciousness. We also join together, to use Don Hoffman's kind of analogy again, as conscious agents to create larger conscious agents. The liminal frames is its own thing that exists as a coherent field of intention because of how your and my energy has worked together to accomplish that. And that's just the way things work. So there's this honoring of every aspect of the experience that subjectively we are all source exploring reality. And so in that sense, there's no better than, there's no rushing to get there, and there's no sense really that it makes sense to say someone's better than somebody else any more than it makes sense to say that a 10th grader is better than a 6th grader. And on top of that, because we are all different expressions of source consciousness, there's also this sense that's come up through things like integral theory, that there's this recognition that different kinds of intelligence also are valued. It's not just cognitive intelligence, how you do on an IQ test. There's aesthetic intelligence, mathematical intelligence, social intelligence, moral intelligence. Those are also vitally important. And we are all at different levels of those lines, these different lines. And so we, in that sense, we can all learn from each other. So it's not just about who's higher than somebody else, but actually learning the best we can from each other across those different levels and lines and everybody moving forward ultimately, which is Again, the main purpose of the enterprise for source consciousness, exploring all these different permutations. 
Mm. Yeah, love that. And I love the the passion that you have for this. And you know, I would say to folks that um, you can you can start anywhere. You can start putting this into practice at any any time. Uh, I'll just take one example, and this is something you hear me complain about often. So I'll I'll, I'll share it here. But in in social media, for example, uh, there's a tendency to really elevate the the sort of negative energy in that space uh, to give attention to negativity and to parrot that negativity back uh, because in that moment that that kind of jab you know it feels very powerful you know where you kind of uh, you know cut someone down or you know stir the pot or you know if you're not doing it yourself you're you're lending your 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 like or your share or your response to the person that is doing that, that has a ramification. And I think people kind of sometimes lose sight of this, but I find it amusing that a lot of the folks in the community will complain about how much drama is is present. But if I take a look at their history and what they're doing, they're they're following the, the accounts that are creating the, the drama. They're liking it, the, the posts that create the drama. They're talking about the drama. So you see what I'm where I'm going here. You know, it doesn't take a lot if we if we just want to shift the the whole energy, as you say. If we want to shift the uh, our you know sort of our momentum, we can do that. We have we have opportunities to do that all the time. You know, just who who do you follow? Who do you lift up? Who do you support? You know, who do you share? What are the what are the own sort of what are your own energetic feelings that you're putting out there? Are you putting out positive energy? Are you lifting someone up in a response? Think about how that plays out. I mean, we all have had that experience where someone has said something negative to us. A total stranger might do something negative to us. I mean, I had somebody the other day just, you know, driving around and they, you know, cut me off or whatever, and they and they didn't seem to care. But think about how that like affects you just like, you know, phys- physiologically, like you're kind of frustrated and you carry that frustration with you throughout the rest of the day. So I'm giving folks, hopefully the examples from real life that we all can relate to where we have opportunities to change that behavior, to change and to shift, as you said, doesn't take a lot. If just some of us do this, it dramatically can impact the entire whole. And so that's what I would encourage people to do. Obviously, I'm using social media because it's just sort of a, a common complaint that I have, but but do it wherever you happen to be. You know, it, it, say thank you to people, you know, be polite, open doors, you know, just, if, if you put that kind of positive energy out to the world, it does, in fact, have a rippling effect and will, in fact, change reality itself. Absolutely true. And I often say to people that feel perhaps overwhelmed by life, which I completely understand. Many people have that experience. And they might feel like, I don't have the opportunity that maybe you have, Darren, or some other people have to make these massive changes in positive ways because I feel somewhat strapped by just circumstance. And I completely understand that. And so there I would say, along the lines of what you're pointing to, just find the little bits of wiggle room you have. That matters. That absolutely matters. It's central. So like you say, the smallest acts of kindness can make a big difference. I was talking to someone this week who has been practicing raising this vibration, raising into frequencies around love and connectivity and forgiveness, as opposed to shame and anger and guilt and that kind of thing. And he was talking to someone on a call that was a professional call, basically, this person he'd never met before. And they just out of the blue said, you've got a really high vibration, literally out of the blue in a professional call. And it spoke to the fact that clearly wasn't just the words he was using, wasn't just his tone of voice. 
she was perceiving something about the way he was expressing himself in the world, the configuration of his energy in that moment. So again, even a situation like that where we're in a professional circle and we sometimes think, well, my job, I've got to do the usual, usual, but when I get home, I'll ple- hopefully like put on this different you know, set of clothes kind of thing. But how in every situation could we just change the configuration a little bit to help the whole move towards this more connected sense? And I also say that speaking of near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences and whatnot and how this ties in, one of the things that's really central about these near-death experiences is that people have this life review. And what happens in the life review is not just that you revisit everything you've done and felt, but you revisit how you made everyone else feel by your actions, including, I would say to people, the posts you liked on social media, the LOLs and the rolling on the floor laughing kind of comments you make that seem kind of harmless, but they're not. They sometimes really cut some people down, right? And I've talked recently with people about because of the anonymity of social media and comment sections and whatnot, people are incredibly harsh sometimes. That's injected a lot of negative energy into the world because people have foolishly believed, wrongly believed that no one sees who I really am in quote unquote real life. So that doesn't really matter. That's a painless kind of expression. And it makes me feel better, like you said, because in the moment it makes you feel powerful, right? It's a it's a low level kind of frequency. It's it's sort of man versus man, right? But I got a one up right here because I put him down and that was a great sort of attack kind of thing. That's very low level frequency. So I would say to everybody, in every way we express ourselves, social media and not, even our thoughts, we think again back to the power of eight and those intentions that were just mental intentions alone, how that could change the way plants grew, the consistency of water, war-torn regions, you know, the healing of people that were being prayed for, as well as the people doing the praying. Think about all these things. Think about how much energy matters. Think about how everything else that we think of as the real world is just the props on the stage set for the evolution of consciousness. Excellent. Well, we've uh, talked a lot about our sort of metaphysical perspective this episode. I've really enjoyed it. It's not, we've not spent a ton of time on the, the UFO topic, UAPs, but we will. We will certainly get back to that. And uh, we know that there's a lot coming down the pipeline to be excited about in that space. But I think more and more as we... Darren and I think about the show, Liminal Frames, and the audience and what we want to do. I'm hoping that y'all can tell we're kind of shifting our attention, our focus, our energy into a different direction, slightly different direction than just purely talking about you know things in the sky that are interesting, because it is so much bigger than that. And that's what we've been trying to kind of emphasize over the so many episodes that we've done, that it is so much bigger than, than that conversation. And we hope that that you're grabbing onto that and, and putting it into practice. We believe it makes a big difference. Um, it certainly made a difference in our own lives, our personal lives. And that's why we're so passionate about it because we're excited to see what that can do in the world. And and you're a part of that. So we thank you for listening to the show and, and all of your support and, and the stories that you share with us uh, mean a great deal. Um, so. We look forward to the future episodes we'll be doing and uh, exciting topics that we'll be exploring. And on that note, I think we'll conclude. May the quality of our questions shaped by a desire for understanding enhance our journey of discovery. And may our travels broaden the sphere of our consciousness, reminding us that new discoveries beget new horizons. As always, adventure awaits. We'll see you next time on Little Frames.